0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. An audience has a story about themselves and about the world. Comedians play with these stories, often in delightful and surprising ways. Last year, I literally played around with stories when I wrote a mashup of the musical Cats in George Orwell's Animal Farm. Cats has always made me giggle, so when the movie trailer came out and everyone was making fun of it, I thought, here's my chance. I watched the opening number of the Broadway version on repeat, and I read Animal Farm. The people in my audience did not watch this Broadway video once and they haven't read Animal Farm in this century. I didn't think about this as I leaned hard into the specifics of both. I didn't think of this as I wrote only one joke, the mashup itself, which can work if you're familiar with one or both stories. The average audience member is not. The typical story around cats is It's a musical and it's ridiculous. That's it. The animal farm story is, I read that in high school, there are animals and maybe Nazis. So I'm gonna give you a taste of what they got that night. And if you're not on the Zoom call, you can't see that I have a donkey mask, a rooster mask, and a cow mask. But trust me, I've got them. Have you ever carried the farmer's plow? Have you woke in the sun with a cockle doodle doo? Have you ever been milked by the farmer's hand, when none of the milk is ever for you? Animals work Humor is steeped in belief. How we see the world shapes our jokes, and jokes shape how we see the world. I'm Ben Fort, and I've spent years creating comedy and practicing the Christian faith. These two worlds have different languages, and this mini-series is a place where they can talk. With the name, name. It did not go well. The response was very polite. Now imagine if my response was to say to this audience, oh, y'all don't understand. It was funny. You see, it's a parody of the Broadway version of Cats, specifically the opening number. Here, pull it up and watch real quick. Thank you. Now read the first two chapters of Animal Farm. I'll wait but trust me, it will be funny. It would not. Yet, when someone's Twitter joke is accused of being sexist or racist, that's exactly what people do. You just don't get it. Stop saying it's racist. Here's a link to the story I'm clearly targeting. It's satire. George Carlin. This feels like a comedian's defense, but it's not what actual comedians do. We get back to work because every joke can be changed, clarified, or thrown away. You step back and say, huh, Cat's Farm doesn't currently work. What if I set it up differently? What if I tell my podcast audience they're about to experience a really bad idea? See what I did there? In the past few weeks, a Christian satire site and two prominent evangelical leaders have tweeted jokes that many considered racist. All of them doubled down on intent, sharing links to the intended target and reiterating their lack of intent to harm or offend. When you share something with an audience, you can't take it back. Audiences don't care about intent. You're only graded on this performance. Which is why comedy has the writer's room, an audience before the audience. It's a generous place where your intent matters, where people assume you're funny and talented even when this draft is not. And it's a gracious place where you're accepted after failure. Sometimes this takes the form of a literal writer's room. And with Cat's Farm, it looked like singing to my wife while wearing a cow mask. With her love of Broadway and graduate degree in literature, She was a wonderful audience before the audience. She provided background vocals, and she was supportive when it didn't translate to a general audience. The writer's room is a place of life, but also a place of death. It's where ideas and jokes go to die, where the idea of jokes go to die. Humor is funniest before you write it, then you share it and your joke isn't clear. Or it's clear and just not funny. Or you think you're targeting one thing and it comes across as another thing. The writer's room is a place of responsibility. It doesn't exist for itself, but for the audience. Your room helps you move past your intent. Figure out what needs to be clarified, changed, or thrown out. To help you say what you're trying to say and stop saying what you're not trying to say. But even with a supportive room, bombing is painful. You don't make jokes to not get laughs. It's even harder when people say your joke is offensive. You failed on two fronts. Your intent failed on two fronts. Your intent to be funny and your intent to not be hurtful. A writer's room only takes care of the comedy side. We also need confession. Like a writer's room, Confession can take different forms. In different Christian circles, it can be a literal confession booth, a small group you meet with weekly, or a conversation with a trusted friend. And even when it's not a booth, confession is a place you enter into. It's a place of acceptance, a forgiving place where you won't be loved less, where you're more than just your latest failure, even when it's the same failure over and over again. It's also a place of responsibility for your side of things. Confession doesn't exist for its own sake. It's not enough to tell someone I hurt my friend. I then need to go apologize to my friend and try to repair the harm I've done. And like a writer's room, others can help you workshop your apology and figure out what needs to be changed, clarified, and thrown out. What's your responsibility and what's not? When I first realized something was wrong, I didn't tell anybody. I was rereading some old sketch material and came across a scene I had written in 2011. I smiled. It was one of the hits of the show. It was a funny situation, a silly what-if. It was about a Sesame Street-type children's show that was filming a segment with a celebrity guest, a fictional rapper known for his violent, anarchic lyrics. One of the show's puppeteers is frightened of this rapper, but eventually, through a children's show ish lesson, the two become friends. As I reread it, I got uncomfortable. Some of the rapper's dialogue was cartoonish and stereotypical. I smoothed over some of the language, made it more acceptable, then set it aside and forgot about it. A couple years later, the scene came up in conversation. I told my wife I didn't think I could stage it again. I was surprised to hear myself say this because I had fixed it. But I knew something was off besides the dialogue. I said something about how it wouldn't play with an audience today. She agreed. I set it aside and forgot about it. Earlier this year, I saw an online graphic with examples of acceptable racism. As a comedian, the word jokes popped out like it was in 3D. And my sketch, the one I had fixed, the one that wouldn't play, jumped into my head. I finally googled rap stereotypes. An audience has a story, and comedians play with these stories. By writing a violent gangster rap character, I was reinforcing stereotypes and playing into racist stories. Our culture has an anti-rap bias with the perception that it's full of violent, immoral lyrics that shape its listeners into violent, immoral people. Researchers have shown the same song lyrics to different test groups, telling some participants it was rap and others it was country. The country lyrics were more positively received. Other studies have shown a link between anti-rap attitudes and anti-black attitudes. One of these studies says rap music, especially gangsta rap, overtly portrays images of some of the most potent and negative stereotypes of black men, namely violent, sexually exploitative and driven to crime as a means to get ahead. Therefore, it is easy to embed what were originally stereotypes against the larger black community into the subtype of the gangsta rapper. So it doesn't matter that this character was played on stage by an Asian American actor. He was still a stereotype. And with his gun and dialogue and violent lyrics, a pure one, it got laughs. At first glance, the scene appears to subvert assumptions. He's shown to be more than a violent rapper, a thoughtful family man with high emotional intelligence. But I played those aspects as a surprising joke, implying that someone like this wouldn't be thoughtful or sensitive. Another joke of the scene is fear. When he raps violent lyrics, the white puppeteer is scared, and the white director is not but it wasn't framed as the calm being reasonable and the fear being irrational. The director's calm was played as a comic surprise. Comedy highlights what's off about the world. I told my audience that this stand in for black stereotypes was off. Because of the stories I played into and how I structured the scene to get laughs, this scene was racist. Confession is an outward inward journey. It usually starts with something external, like, Audiences are different now, more sensitive to these kind of things. Then moves inward. This dialogue is problematic. The structure is problematic. This scene mines racist stories for laughs. This scene is racist and harmful. I wrote a harmful, racist scene. I can be racist. It took a decade for me to get to that last part, because it contradicts stories I believe about myself. That I don't make racist jokes, and that racist humor is something horrible people do intentionally. But what if I've done it? What if I've benefited from it? When our actions contradict our stories, we have choices. I can double down on the story, insist that this scene is not racist, I can try and sweep it up, not tell anyone and make sure I never do it again. I can scroll on my phone and try to forget about the dissonance. Or I can confess. I can adapt my story. But the goal isn't to go from a prideful, oh, I'd never make a racist joke, to a shameful, oh, I make racist jokes. It's a humble, nuanced, I'm capable of making racist jokes. And with that new story, I'm more likely to listen when someone says my joke is offensive. It's no longer an impossible category. It also changes my story of others. I can encounter a racist joke and remember that I too am a racist joker in need of grace. I'm able to approach more generously, open to the possibility that they're not being harmful on purpose. Still, a defensive part of me says, come on, I can't research everything I joke about. I watched Jellicle songs 20 times. I read Animal Farm and The Great Gatsby. One time I read an entire history book about the French Revolution to write a five-minute sketch that I didn't end up writing. When I care about a story and want to get the details right... I research. I just didn't care about the stories around rap and black stereotypes. I don't even listen to non-Kanye rap. I just wrote a funny situation based on my idea of a gangster rapper. I was happy to dip into this story, personally benefit from some laughs, and be on my way. Trey Parker and Matt Stone did research when they wrote their Book of Mormon musical, Where the faith and enthusiasm of young Mormon missionaries are tested when they're sent to war torn Uganda. It got rave reviews. The satire was specific and biting. The writers went deep into the Latter day Saints' church and history and are proud about including obscure references that only get laughs from Mormons and ex Mormons. But they didn't do research with the African characters search book of mormon musical racist and you'll find reviews like this one for the baltimore sun the ugandans are depicted as dumb impoverished superstitious overly sexualized and childlike through clearly racist and denigrating tropes that feed into long-standing stereotypes of black people in africa end quote to make their joke about religion They made a joke of Africans. I wish I could say I read this review and immediately believed it. But there were stories in the way. I enjoyed the Book of Mormon. I was offended at some things, but not the portrayal of the Ugandan characters. Then there's my story that I don't laugh at racist jokes. That I'd know one when I saw it and would definitely not laugh. It changes my story of other people, that it's wicked, overtly racist people who laugh at racist jokes. The Book of Mormon creators are also known for South Park, a show that's been praised for making fun of everyone. This equal opportunity approach seems noble and on the surface in line with the beautiful, horrible framework I shared in the last episode. Everyone and everything is broken. So anything can be ridiculed. True, but it's arrogant to think that you can ridicule everything. It assumes an objective vantage point where you can see all things clearly. This ignores your own limits and brokenness, and it ignores the limits and brokenness of your audience. Let's say you want to write political satire, and you look around and think, both parties are a mess. I'll be equal opportunity writing half of my satire about the right and half about the left. But you have a political story. You lean a certain way, which means you'll have to work harder to satirize the other side. With your side, your material is based on your values and concern. But for them, it starts off as your idea of their values and concerns. There's a reason you're not over there. But let's say you acknowledge your bias, do your research, and write funny, truthful satire with a clear, moral target. What happens when you hand that to an audience? They have a story. Framing one party as more beautiful and the other as more horrible. How is your satire going to land in those stories? Before the Late Show, Stephen Colbert hosted the Colbert Report where he satirized conservative pundits by ironically becoming one. Researchers found people who were unfamiliar with the show and showed them a clip where he ironically said something conservative. Liberals and conservatives both found it funny and both thought he was on their side. Liberals ironically and conservatives unironically. This doesn't bode well for using comedy to persuade. Is there a way to cut through the stories? One possibility is confession. Writer and producer Jeannie Gaffigan has said this about confessional comedy. You can't go and preach to people and be like, you're a bunch of lazy narcissists. You have to find your own flaw and say, I'm a lazy narcissist. And then it's funny because people relate to it. Like the Colbert Report, Confessional comedy is embodied, but it's not an ironic embodiment of someone else's brokenness. It's an honest embodiment of my own. I wanted to give this a shot with a religious themed sketch show for a local university. I brought together writers who are a mix of religious, atheist, and spiritual, not religious, with backgrounds in Islam, Christian science, Catholic. Louisiana Catholic, and several years in a cult, I asked them to look inward to write about their struggles with their own beliefs and journeys. It was a big ask of my writers, and I didn't understand how big. This show was at Texas Christian University, and as a white Texas Christian, I reflected the audience. Not everyone here is religious, but most people grew up going to church. When I play into my own stories, the laughs I get are just laughs. My friend, who grew up practicing Islam in Syria, does not reflect the audience. He knows where some people place him on the beautiful, horrible scale. He knows that self-critique could play into the wrong kinds of stories and get the wrong kinds of laughs. As he wrote, he had to run an equation on every idea and angle to weigh whether or not it was worth it. As he struggled to find an angle, I thought he was being timid, unwilling to dig deep. Because I was struggling to find an angle. To dig deep and be confessional about your beliefs is hard. To make comedy about that is really hard. Comedy isn't easy, to rewrite and write, to feel good about something in the writer's room and still fail on stage. I went to Chicago with dreams of being a professional comedy writer, and I didn't get that. I didn't personally benefit from my time at Second City. That's what makes privilege so hard to understand and accept. Life is hard. Comedy is hard. and. I don't have to run the equations to think about what an audience will do with a joke or someone like me. And I have the freedom of drawing on all my experiences, because when there's only one Syrian in your comedy community, you can't stage a scene with two Syrians. I can write scenes about my family and what it's like back home, but if he wants to write about those things, the best case scenario is that he shares it with the writer's room We enjoy it and set it aside. There's also a chance that we don't get it because it's an unfamiliar story, that we'd make it a humor issue and say it wasn't funny, but we'd be more supportive than that. We'd say, oh yeah, 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 I like it. Good job. Hey, thanks for bringing that in, man. This is also an equation, and sometimes it's easier to leave those scripts, those ideas, That part of yourself at home. In an earlier episode, I shared Andy Crouch's idea of cultivation from his book, Culture Making. He compares cultivating to gardening, saying, "...a gardener looks carefully at the landscape, the existing plants, both flowers and weeds, the way the sun falls on the land. The gardener tends what has gone before." making the most of what is beautiful and weeding out what is distracting or useless. This gardening is the work of confession in the writer's room. It's also the work of comedy itself. Our jokes, our souls, the career field we're in, all have their own weeds, and they have interconnected weeds. My racist sketch wasn't an isolated weed. It's not just this joke, but a category of joking that needs to be rooted out. It revealed weeds in myself and my stories. It revealed weeds in the system I'm in. Not one of my collaborators or anyone who saw it told me that sketch was a weed. If they didn't see it as a weed, that's a weed. If they saw it and said nothing because they didn't think I'd be open to critique, that's a weed. It's toil to weed our jokes and souls in our career fields, and it can be overwhelming and discouraging when all you do is focus on the weeds. We need to remember the goal of a garden, flowers, and food. A diverse writers room helps us see the weeds, but we don't bring in other voices as an HR department to validate existing stories, it's so they can tell theirs. We garden so everyone can bring their full selves to the writer's room, to the field of comedy, to an audience. HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is exactly what it sounds like, is the first comedy writer's room to be made up completely of black women. Head writer Lauren Ashley Smith talks of the freedom of the room, saying, I was used to doing this sort of translating for myself. There would be a point where I'd write my pitch, and then the point in my pitch where I'd explain my pitch. Like, this cultural experience that you maybe haven't had is this. She continues When you're able to operate from such a shared starting place, you get so much more time and energy to be creative. You're not explaining yourself. And creative they got. It's a weird show with puppets in the opening credits. In scenes about spies, 60s pop groups, and body-snatching aliens, there is material directly about their experiences as black women, and also plenty of silly delight, because it's just fun to be a spy or an alien or a 60s pop star. They made a funny sketch show, just like many groups of white men have made a funny sketch show. And the room was diverse. Showrunner Robin Thede intentionally brought together women of different backgrounds, and they brought their whole selves to the show. I want to work toward that kind of freedom. I want to give that freedom to others. But I was taught to garden at Second City. Their CEO just stepped down, admitting that he enabled a culture of racism. The interim director says they will look for weeds in every corner of their organization. Which means I have to examine my own garden, this garden that I paid for, this garden that I've passed along as a teacher that I've been paid for. In the last episode, I shared some ethical problems I saw as a student, but I didn't see these problems. Other alumni, including professional writers and actors, saw it crystal clear. I didn't think about all 10 of my teachers being white, that only two of them were women. And that is inconvenient to my story that I know inequality when I see it. It's happened at all the major comedy theaters Second City and Improv Olympic and Upright Citizens Brigade and The Groundlings. I read about those student and teacher experiences. And I see how much blackface has been used on television in the 2000s, and I remember how SNL didn't have a black actor to play Obama, so they used Fred Armisen, and I get overwhelmed by the bigness of it all. But I no longer garden at Second City. I can read about their problems, learn from it, and confess my part of it and how I didn't see it. But my work, right now is in my local community gardens. The community garden of my family, rooting out harmful categories so my son and daughter won't joke about those things and can bring their full selves to our family sense of humor. The community garden of the comedy scene in Fort Worth, Texas. The weeds in the class I teach, in the theater itself. I badly want to fix my comedy community, but it's arrogant. To think I can fix everything. It assumes an objective vantage point where I can see all things clearly. It ignores my own limits and brokenness. I need to learn from the confession of Second City's former CEO. In his resignation letter, he shares how they brought in experts to facilitate conversations with their employees about racial bias. But the culture didn't change because, in his own words, I succumbed to what I now realize was my unconscious biases, the biases of the theater community, and the biases of the city in which Second City is embedded. I surrounded myself with people mostly of my own race and culture. Cat's Farm needed to change. My stories needed to change. I needed other people in order to see, test, process, and weed And now, my vision of inclusion and flourishing, what it looks like for comedy to be a place for everyone, needs to change. And I need other people. People who are not new to the weeds, those who have been harmed by the weeds. People with new flowers and methods of gardening. That means sharing power and influence. Maybe giving it up entirely. It's scary. It's the garden I've known and enjoyed. It's produced good flowers and good fruit that others have enjoyed. What if I mess up what I already have? But it's less scary because I've seen the beauty of confession in writer's rooms. I've seen the benefit of submitting to the wisdom of others and retiring faulty stories for better, truer ones. And it's less scary than the idea of handing an untended garden to my children and students. It won't be a perfect garden. And even if it was, and it's not, I have to pass on the work of gardening. Because even a lovely garden will fall into disarray without work and care. When I do pass on a flawed garden, it can find new life with work and care. I need to pass on the work to my children and students, and that means showing the work, confessing, repenting, submitting, and changing, naming the weeds and flowers that I know. And as they garden, they can name new weeds and new flowers and new methods. They can teach me what I don't know, and we can garden and work towards something more beautiful together. Your homework assignment. As you encounter jokes, think about the stories they play into. Funny Beliefs is written and recorded by me, Ben Fort. It's produced by Jonathan Clausen. Artwork by Seth Honey. And this music is by me. And thank you to Tyler and Aaron, my CAPC editors. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Fort Worth. That's my name and my city. I'd love to connect there, or if you're listening during the run of the show, I record these episodes on a Monday night Zoom call. Afterwards, we get to talk about it, and if that sounds fun, I'd be happy to send you an invite. The beautiful, horrible framework is almost impossible to believe if everything you consume plays into an us versus them narrative. Christ and Pop Culture is a hopeful publication that seeks the good, the beautiful, and the true. You can support that kind of work for just five dollars a month. Go to christandpopculture.com slash subscribe. That's subscribe like a writer in an underwater boat.